For the Old Testament reading today, we will go to Deuteronomy chapter 6. Deuteronomy chapter 6. And for the New Testament reading, we will go to Luke 4 and consider verses 1 through 13. Luke 4, 1 through 13. First, Deuteronomy chapter 6. Hear now the reading of God's most holy word. This is Moses speaking to the people of Israel. After a long time wandering in the wilderness and before they enter into the promised land with Joshua at the lead. Now this is the commandment, the statutes and the rules that the Lord your God commanded me to teach you, that you may do them in the land to which you are going over to possess it, that you may fear the Lord your God, you and your son and your son's son, by keeping all the statutes and his commandments which I command you all the days of your life, and that your days may be long. Hear therefore, O Israel, and be careful to do them, that it may go well with you, and that you may multiply greatly as the Lord, the God of your fathers, has promised you in a land flowing with milk and honey. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. And when the Lord your God brings you into the land that He swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, to give you with great and good cities that you did not build and houses full of all good things that you did not fill and cisterns that you did not dig and vineyards and olive trees that you did not plant. And when you eat and are full, then take care lest you forget the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. It is the Lord your God you shall fear. Him you shall serve, and by His name you shall swear. You shall not go after other gods, the gods of the peoples who are all all around you. For the Lord your God is in your midst. He is a jealous God. Lest the anger of the Lord your God be kindled against you, and He destroy you from off the face of the earth. You shall not put the Lord your God to the test, as you tested Him at Massah. You shall diligently keep the commandments of the Lord your God, and His testimonies and His statutes, which He has commanded you. And you shall do what is right and good in the sight of the Lord, that it may go well with you, and that you may go in and take possession of the good land that the Lord your God swore to give you by the fathers, by thrusting out all your enemies from before you, as the Lord has promised." When your son asks you in the time to come, what is the meaning of the testimonies and the statutes and the rules that the Lord our God has commanded you? Then you shall say to your son, We were Pharaoh's slaves in Egypt, and the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand, and the Lord showed signs and wonders great and grievous against Egypt and against Pharaoh and all his household before our eyes. And he brought us out from there that he might bring us in and give us the land that he swore to give our fathers. And the Lord commanded us to do all these statutes to fear the Lord our God for our good always, that he might preserve us alive as we are this day. And it will be righteousness for us if we are careful to do all this commandment before the Lord our God as He has commanded us. Let us go now to the New Testament reading, which is Luke chapter 4, verses 1 through 13. This is an account of the temptation of Jesus in the wilderness. And you will notice that our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ did quote 
from Deuteronomy chapter 6, which we just read, in his battle against temptation. And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for forty days, being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days. And when they were ended, he was hungry. The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone. And the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time and said to him, To you I will give all this authority and their glory, for it has been delivered to me, and I give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. And Jesus answered him, It is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. And he took him to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, Throw yourself down from here, for it is written, He will command His angels concerning you to guard you, and on their hands He will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered him, It is said, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. This is now the reading of God's most holy word. May He add His blessing to the preaching of it this morning. What is the meaning of the story of the temptation of Jesus found in Luke 4, 1 through 13? What is this story about? What is the point of this passage? If I were to guess, I would say that many Christians today view this story about Jesus' victory over temptation as being primarily an example to us. And by that I mean that I'm afraid that many interpret this passage as a kind of moralistic story wherein Jesus sets forth as an example to us to show us how we are to resist temptation when it comes. Perhaps you have heard this passage preached in this way. We are to look to Jesus as our example. Just as He was tempted, so too will we be tempted. And here is how we must endure the temptation. Here is how we must overcome the temptation, just as Jesus did. Now, I do not deny that there are wonderful principles here in this story to be used by the people of God to resist temptation. Like Jesus, we must know God's Word and use it as the sword of the Spirit in our fight against temptation. We must be alert, especially in moments of physical and mental weakness, and we must not take shortcuts in life, but honor God in all situations, even if the path is very hard. We could probably add some applications, some suggestions for applications to these that I have just rapidly mentioned, all drawn from this wonderful story. But I am sure, brothers and sisters, that this passage is not meant to function as a mere example to us, to help us in our personal fight against sin. No, I am sure that this story is about Jesus Christ and it is about the victory that He has won for us. Stated differently, Jesus is not to be viewed primarily as a moral example, but as our victorious Savior. Luke presents Jesus to us here as the second and greater Adam and as the true Israel of God, who through His perfect and perpetual obedience has defeated Satan 
dethroned him from his illegitimate throne, bound him, plundered his house, and having finished his work, having obeyed to the point of death and having been raised from the dead, he has ascended to his rightful throne, and he has sat down, thus securing for himself an eternal kingdom. And this kingdom is not only for him, but it is for all who are united to him by faith. That is what this story is about. This passage is about Jesus, and it is about the victory that he has won over Satan and his kingdom. The victory was secured at the cross, but note this, it began here when Jesus was tempted in the wilderness by the devil. He was tempted not once, not twice, but three times, and yet he endured. He did not stumble, but remained faithful to God. And so here we see the beginning of the accomplishment of our salvation from bondage to sin, Satan, and his kingdom of darkness. Is Jesus an example to us? Are we to imitate him? In many respects, yes. But please hear me, friends. He is so much more than an example to us. Jesus did not come to merely be our example. He came to accomplish salvation for all given to Him by the Father in eternity. You may see John 17 for this. It is so crucial for you to understand this, brothers and sisters. If you do not understand this, then I wonder if you understand the gospel through which men and women are are saved. Uh, Truly, I do. I, I wonder if you have grasped the gospel, if you do not understand that Jesus is so much more than an example to us. He is our victorious Savior. Uh, Hear this, please. There is no good news at all in this statement. Jesus came to live as an example for you. There is no good news at all in that statement. Why? Because we are not capable of imitating Christ perfectly. And more than this, Striving to imitate Christ perfectly from this day forward would do nothing at all to remedy the problem of original corruption, past sins, and the fact that we will continue to fall short of Christ's example, no matter how sincere and strong our efforts may be. There is no good news at all in the statement, Jesus came to live as an example for you, but here is good news. Christ came to live a life of perfect obedience to die in the place of sinners, so that through faith in Him we might have His righteousness as a gift and our sins washed away. That is what Jesus came to accomplish. And only after we look to Him as Savior can we look to Him as an example for us. As John says in 1 John 2.6, Whoever says he abides in Christ ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. I want you to notice the order in this simple little verse. 1 John 2, 6. Whoever says he abides in Christ ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. First, we must abide in Christ by faith. And then we are to walk as he walked with God's help. So the point is this. The passage that is before us today is about the victory that Jesus has won for us by defeating Satan and overturning his works and the kingdom of darkness over which he ruled. I have five questions to ask of our text. And once we answer them, I think you will agree with me that this is what the passage is about. The victory that Christ has won. Firstly, I ask, when did this event take place? When did this event, the, 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 the event of the temptation of Jesus in the wilderness, when did it take place? 
And the answer is this. It happened immediately after Jesus' baptism. At the very beginning of his public ministry, Luke 4.1 says, And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for forty days, being tempted by the devil. The words, And Jesus returned from the Jordan, take us back to uh, Luke 3, 1-22, where we are told of the baptism of Jesus by John in the Jordan River. Uh, if you remember, Jesus' baptism did not signify the washing away of sins, for he had none. But it did, did signify that he was the Messiah and the great high priest of the new covenant. Jesus' baptism at, at about the age of 30 marked the beginning of his public ministry as the Lord's Messiah. And what was his first order of business? What was the very first thing that he did? Immediately he went out into the wilderness to fast and pray and to slap Satan around a bit. That is what he did, metaphorically speaking, of course. He did this to set the tone for his entire ministry. He did this to make it clear that he came for this purpose, to bind Satan so that he might plunder his house and eventually crush him under his feet. While it is true that this victory over the evil one would be accomplished in full at the cross, we must see that it began here in the wilderness immediately after Jesus' baptism and at the very beginning of His earthly ministry. The entirety of Jesus' ministry on earth is to be viewed, therefore, as an overthrowing of Satan and his kingdom. The words full of the Holy Spirit in Luke 4.1 also signal that this story is about Jesus' first order of business as the Messiah. Messiah means anointed one, and Jesus was indeed anointed with the Holy Spirit as His baptism. Obviously, He was not anointed with the Spirit unto salvation, for Christ did not need to be saved. No, instead, He was anointed as the Messiah, the Savior, and our great prophet, priest, and king. Again, I say to you, His first order of business as God's anointed one was to face off with Satan, His foe, in the wilderness, and to demonstrate his superiority and to establish the fact that Satan's defeat was very near. Secondly, I ask, where is this story presented in Luke's Gospel? Uh, yes, it is after the story of Jesus' baptism, as recorded in Luke 3, 1-22. through 22, But do not forget about the genealogy of Jesus, which Luke placed after the story of Jesus' baptism and right before his temptation in uh, the wilderness. I've made much of this in the last sermon I preached on Luke 3, 23-38. Luke placed the genealogy of Jesus in a strange place. He did not put it at the very beginning of his gospel, connected with the birth of Christ as we might expect, and as, as, as Matthew did. Instead, uh, Luke placed it here, in between the story of his baptism and the story of his temptation in the wilderness. And we must remember that Luke worked backward in history from Jesus ending with Adam, and he did this so that we might have Adam fresh in our minds as we consider the story of Jesus' temptation. Why is this important? Well, it is because Jesus is to be compared and contrasted with Adam. Jesus must be compared and contrasted with Adam. What do the two share in common? Many things. They are both human. They were both brought into the world by the direct creative activity of God. They were both appointed to function as federal heads or covenantal representatives on behalf of others. Adam represented all of humanity, whereas Christ represents all of God's elect under the new covenant, which is the covenant of grace. 
Both men were called to obey God perfectly and perpetually if they were to obtain the reward promised to them by the Father. And lastly, both men were tested or tempted by Satan. Adam and Christ share a lot in common. But how do they differ in many ways? Adam is a man and Jesus is a man, but Jesus is no mere man, but is the eternal Son of God incarnate. He is the God-man. Adam was called to obey God's moral law and the positive law to not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But please hear this. Jesus was called to do more. He was called to obey the moral law, all of the positive laws that were added and imposed upon the children of Abraham in the days of Moses, and he was called to faithfully suffer and die in the place of sinners and to endure God's wrath for them so as to redeem them. Adam was never called to do this, was he? No, for the covenant was made with him in the garden before sin entered the world. And so this is a great point of difference between these two federal heads, Adam and Christ. Christ was not only called to perpetually obey God's moral law and the positive laws of the old Mosaic covenant, he also had to passively obey God in being willing to suffer even to the point of death in order to accomplish the redemption of God's people. Uh, The point is this, Jesus' burden was much, much heavier than Adam's. And I think this is illustrated in a beautiful way by the fact that Adam was tempted in that garden paradise that God made in the beginning, which was full of fruits and vegetables, water and every pleasant thing. Everything was good, indeed very good, in the world that God had made in the world that Adam had occupied, but Christ was tempted where? Where did he go to be tempted? He is tempted in the wilderness. He's tempted in a very barren and dry land. He's tempted after having ate nothing for 40 days. Christ was tempted in a fallen world, and his mission was not only to actively obey God's law, but to passively submit himself to suffering. Suffering in the whole of life, and especially the suffering of the cross. All of this He would do for those given to Him by the Father in eternity. Christ's burden was much heavier than Adam's. And yet Christ, for the joy that was set before Him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and is therefore now seated at the right hand of the throne of God, says Hebrews 12, 2. And here we see the greatest difference of all between Adam and Jesus Adam rebelled against God, whereas Christ was perfectly obedient. The first Adam failed, but the second Adam succeeded. Adam, having been tempted lightly by Satan through his wife while surrounded by the paradise that God had made, quickly sinned. In contrast to this, Jesus was all alone in the desert wilderness. He was faint with hunger. He was assaulted by the evil one himself, and yet he never wavered. Not here, at the beginning of His public ministry, not in the Garden of Gethsemane, not ever. The point is this. Luke positioned the genealogy of Jesus right before the account of His temptation in the wilderness and concluded the genealogy with Adam so that we might see Jesus as the second and greater Adam, who was indeed, in every respect, tempted as we are, yet without sin. Hebrews 4.15 Thirdly, I ask... How did Jesus end up in the wilderness? How did he get there? Was he lost? Did Satan lure him there? No, Luke 4.1 says that Jesus 
full of the Holy Spirit, was led by the Spirit in the wilderness. The Spirit of God led him there. Why? So that he might confront Satan on his home turf, so that he might be tested, and so that he might pass the test. Another way to say this was that it was not Satan who initiated this showdown. It was God who took the initiative. It was God who sent Christ into the wilderness to confront Satan on his home turf so as to begin the process of overthrowing him, binding him so that he might plunder his house. At this point, I think it would probably be good for us to make another connection. We have already made the obvious comparison between Jesus and Adam. But I think we must also see Jesus, not only as the the second and better Adam, but as the true and faithful Israel of God. Jesus is here presented to us as the true and faithful Israel of God. He is the true and faithful, to say it another way, He is the true and faithful Son of Abraham, you see. Uh, That is how he is clearly presented to us here in Luke's narrative. If we are paying attention, we will see it. Consider this. In Hosea 11.1, God says, I hope you're able to focus through this. It's beautiful. It is so important. If we are to understand Christ and his finished work for us, we must see these themes. Hosea 11.1, writing long before the coming of, of Christ, God God spoke to Israel saying, When Israel was a child, when Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. This is obviously a reference to the Exodus event when God led Israel out of Egyptian bondage. But I wonder if you remember how Matthew picks up this text and uses it. Matthew in his gospel quotes this Hosea passage, and says that it's about Jesus. He says that it's about Jesus. When Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. You remember the story. Herod was putting children to death. Mary and Joseph took Jesus where in order to protect him for a time? Egypt. And when they returned home from Egypt to Bethlehem, uh, Matthew quotes this passage, Hosea 1.11. Hear it again. When Israel was... A, does it bother you that I call Jesus the true Israel of God? Your issue should not be with me, but with the Scriptures. For that is what Matthew says, you see. He says this happened to fulfill this prophecy. It looks to us like Hosea was simply looking back, saying, Do you remember when Israel was redeemed from Egyptian bondage and led into the wilderness? Do you remember that? You know, God, Look at God's love for Israel. But no, Matthew is saying this, this passage is really about Jesus. When Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. This was about Jesus, you see. So then Jesus is Israel. Israel was redeemed from Egypt and was made into a nation so that the Messiah would be brought into the world through him. Jesus is that Messiah. Israel foreshadowed Jesus. And when Jesus came into the world to do the work that God gave him to to do, he fulfilled all all of the promises, prophecies, types, and shadows that were entrusted to Israel. He He is the Israel of God. He is the true son of Abraham that was promised to Abraham long, long ago. I trust that you will remember this from our study of the book of Exodus. After Israel 
was led out of Egypt by Moses. Where did they go? Where did, where did Israel go immediately after they were led out of Egypt by Moses? They were led, and note this, by the Spirit of God in the glory cloud to the Red Sea. And after they were baptized into Moses by passing through the Red Sea, Israel was baptized into Moses through the waters of the Red Sea. If you don't believe me, you can hear Paul himself say it in 1 Corinthians 10.2. After they were baptized into Moses in the Red Sea, where were they led? Again, I say to you, they were led by the Spirit of God out into the wilderness. Can you connect the two stories, uh, brothers and sisters? They were led out into the wilderness for what purpose? To be tested there. God tested them there in the wilderness. And how many times were they tested? Well, they were tested continuously, of course. But the book of Exodus highlights three instances. Make the connection between the three temptations of Christ. If you remember, they were tested at Marah. In Exodus 15, 22 and following. They were tested again in the wilderness of sin in Exodus 16. And again at Rephidim, as recorded in Exodus 17. Israel was tested, tested, tested. The tests had to do with the lack of water, the lack of food, and then water again. And what did Israel, Old Covenant Israel, do in each instance? They grumbled, grumbled grumbled against the Lord, and they put him to the test, you see. The Lord was very displeased with them. And so they wandered in that wilderness for 40 years. So I hope you can see that Jesus, when he began his earthly ministry, took a very similar path. Having passed through the waters of baptism at the Jordan, he was led by the Spirit out into the wilderness to be tested there. He was tested three times, just as Israel was, but he did not grumble and complain. He did not lose faith or deviate in the slightest from God's will for him. No, Jesus was faithful. He is the faithful and true Israel of God. Adam and Israel rebelled, but Jesus is the second and better Adam the true and faithful Israel of God. He is the faithful son of Abraham through whom God has brought the blessings of salvation to the nations as was promised to Abraham from the very beginning. Both of these stories, the story of Israel's threefold failure in the wilderness and of Jesus' threefold victory are very important for they both set the tone for and anticipate how things would go in the future. Old Covenant Israel's entire existence would be marked by sin and unfaithfulness. But Jesus' life would be marked by perfect and perpetual obedience to the Father. The message is quite clear. Neither Moses nor the covenant that he mediated would provide for the salvation of sins given the sins of the people. But Jesus... And the covenant of grace that He mediates does provide salvation and the forgiveness of sins. For Christ, unlike Adam and Israel before Him, was victorious. How did Jesus end up in the wilderness? Well, He was led there by the Spirit of God to be tempted and tested by the evil one and to win the victory. Fourthly, let us consider what happened. Luke 4.2 tells us that Jesus was in the wilderness for 40 days. This corresponds to the 40 years that Israel would wander in the wilderness, by the way. 
And then Luke says, being tempted by the devil. I think we are to take this to mean that Jesus was tempted continuously during that period of time. Jesus being tempted by the devil the whole time, right? And then we read, he ate nothing during those days, and when they were ended, he was hungry. So Jesus was fasting, he was praying, presumably in preparation for all that awaited him, including his crucifixion that would come about three years later. In verse 3 we read, The devil said to him, and so here we have the first of three pronounced temptations, three particular temptations as recorded for us. The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. Here we have the first of three particular temptations. So I should probably address this question, Who is this one who is called the devil. Well, he is the chief of the fallen angels who were created by God upright in the beginning but rebelled. He has many names. Devil means slanderer. Satan means accuser. Lucifer means shining one. He is the leader of the heavenly hosts that rebelled against God in the heavenly realm in the beginning. And he is also the one who tempted Eve and then brought the temptation to Adam. Here he is tempting Jesus, uh, showing us that his, his purposes and his ways have not changed in the slightest. Notice carefully that the devil knew who Jesus was. The devil knew who Jesus was. If you are the Son of God, he said, then command this stone to become bread. Satan knew that Jesus was the person of the eternal Son of God who took on flesh, but he tempted him nonetheless. And I think he had no other choice. God brought the fight to him, remember? God the Son intruded into Satan's domain. He kicked down the door, as it were, and stood in his living room. Uh, that is what is going on here. What other choice did Satan have except to put up some sort of fight? And so he tempts Jesus. He tempts Jesus. And when the time was right, when it was time for his public ministry to begin... Uh, we see that Jesus brought the fight to Satan, and there is this face-off. And so the devil pushed back in the only way that he could. He tempted Jesus to deviate from his course. That's what these temptations, I think all three of them, are all about. He knew what the Son of God came to do in the Incarnation. He probably did not know the particulars of how he would do it, but he knew what he came to do because these things were foretold. These things were spoken from long ago, and the devil himself was aware of it. The devil knew that one day a son would be born to Eve, who would crush his head. He understood this, and so as he sees the Son of God incarnate standing before him in his house, he begins to push back and to try to tempt him to, to change course. That's what this temptation is all about. What is this first temptation about? Well, Satan is here essentially tempting Jesus to use his divine power to serve the desires of his flesh, this flesh that he had assumed, rather than to set his desires to the side and to serve God and those he came to save. Uh, that is the essence of this temptation. He's trying to get Jesus to, to, to deviate from his path, from his calling. And he comes at him in this way, would you use your divine power to serve yourself, to alleviate the suffering that you are now experiencing? Instead of, instead of suffering and dying in the place of others and in faithfulness to God, would you take this course instead? 
Here is Jesus' reply. It is written. It is written. We have something incredible going on here. The eternal word of God is about to quote the written word of God, which he himself inspired. It is written, man shall not live by bread alone. So Satan tempts Jesus in this way. If you are the Son of God, command this stone to become bread, and then all of your hunger will will be gone. Serve yourself, Jesus. Use your divine power to to meet your your human and physical uh, desires. But Jesus says, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone. This is a citation from Deuteronomy 8.3. I'd like to read this text to you, Deuteronomy 8.3. We read from Deuteronomy 6 earlier, but this is a, a different place in Deuteronomy that is, that is cited. I want to start in verse 1 of Deuteronomy 8 and go all the way through verse 10. I cannot take the time to elaborate on the reading of this passage. But I want you to listen very carefully I think if you do, you'll grow more convinced about the connections that we have made between Israel in the wilderness and Jesus in the wilderness. In fact, I would ask you to hear this text, Deuteronomy 8, not only as it was given originally to Israel, but as if it were ultimately about Jesus and His work. Um, I want you to hear it in that way because it is ultimately about Jesus and His work. Didn't Jesus say so? We're going to hear about that in Luke's Gospel too. At the very end, Luke 24, all the law, the prophets, and the Psalms are fulfilled in me, he says. So yes, this is, this is Moses speaking to Old Covenant Israel. That's the immediate context, no doubt. Let's not deny that. They are in a real wilderness, and they are going to enter into a real promised land. But I am saying to you that there is another level of meaning embedded here. This text in Deuteronomy 8 is really about Jesus. It's about Jesus and how He would enter into the promised land, the new heavens and new earth? How would He do it through faithful obedience and even through suffering? Listen, Deuteronomy 8.1 The whole commandment that I command you today, you should be careful to do. Can you hear this said to Jesus? It was said to Israel. It was also said to Jesus that you may live and multiply. So keep these commandments so that you may live and multiply. Has Jesus kept the commandments of God? Yes. Does He now live? Yes. Has He multiplied? Yes, He has. He has multiplied because He will bring many sons and daughters to glory. And go in and possess the land that the Lord your God, that that the Lord swore to give your fathers. What land was that for Israel? It was Canaan. What land is that for Jesus? The new heavens and new earth. I can't take the time to comment on every line here, so let's go. And you shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness, that He might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep His commandments or not. And He humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that He might make you know, and here it is, that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. That is what Jesus cited to the devil as he tempted him to serve himself by turning the stone to bread. I continue, your clothing did not wear out on you and your foot did not swell these 40 years. Know then in your heart that as a man disciplines his son, the Lord your God disciplines you. You shall keep the commandments of the Lord your God by walking in his ways and by fearing him. For the Lord your God is bringing you into a good land 
a land of brooks and water, of fountains and springs flowing out in the valleys and hills, a land of wheat and barley, of vines and fig trees and pomegranates, a land of olive trees and honey, a land in which you will eat bread without scarcity, in which you will lack nothing, a land whose stones are iron, and out of whose hills you can dig copper, and you shall eat and be full, and you shall bless the Lord your God for the good land He has given you. Uh, Brothers and sisters, the imagery here is marvelous. This had an immediate and literal fulfillment in Israel's conquest of Canaan, no doubt. But ultimately, this is about Jesus. It it is about His perfect and perpetual obedience. And it is about the land that He has entered into. It is the heavenly Jerusalem that He has entered into. It is the heavenly Jerusalem that Abraham first hoped in, you see. Abraham did not set his hopes and dreams on Canaan. He set it on the heavenly Jerusalem, you see. And this is the land that his son, Jesus, has entered into, not only for himself, but for us too. Do you see what is going on here in Luke 4 as Jesus is tempted and as he quotes Deuteronomy chapter 6? He is not only fighting against Satan in the same way that you and I should by quoting Scripture. He's doing far more than this. He is claiming to be the one of whom Deuteronomy Deuteronomy 6, or rather 8, excuse me, uh, spoke. He is fulfilling these things. In Luke 4, 5, we are told of the second pronounced temptation. And the devil took Jesus up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And said to him, listen carefully to this, what... What arrogance, you see. What, what, what foolish arrogance and what rebellion there is in Satan. He took him up, showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment's time. So he showed him this, this great vision, you see. And he said to him, To you I will give all this authority and their glory, for it has been delivered to me, and I give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, If you will bow before me, Jesus, if you will submit to me, it will all be yours. What is this about? Here the devil tempted Jesus yet again to take a shortcut, to deviate from the path that was set before him. The devil knew who Jesus was. He was the Son of God incarnate. And he knew what Jesus came to do. He came to accomplish salvation for those given to him by the Father. He came to kick Satan off of his illegitimate throne and and to sit down on that throne himself as the King of kings and Lord of lords with all authority in heaven and on earth given to him. Satan knew who Jesus was and he knew what his mission was. And so Satan tempted him in this way to deviate from this path and to get this in another way. Do you want all authority on heaven and on earth? I'll tell you what we can do, Jesus. Let's make this deal. This is all mine, and I will give it to you. I will give it to you right now, you see. I'll give it to you right now. Let's let's skip the suffering. Let's skip the whole, not that he knew that it would be accomplished on a cross, but you get it. Let's skip the whole, the serpent is going to strike at your heel portion of Genesis 3.15. Are you tracking with me? Let's skip all the suffering. Let's skip the cross. And let's just do this deal now the easy way. This is all mine. I've come into possession of it. And I will give it to you in this very moment. If you will only do what? Submit yourself to me. Worship me. 
Uh, by the way, it sounds an awful lot like the same temptation that the serpent brought to Eve and Adam in the beginning. Doesn't it? Different words, different images, same idea. Exact same idea. So here we have Jesus, the second Adam, being tempted in the same way that the first Adam was tempted. Um, well, at least there are many uh, similarities, you see. So what do we mean when we say that Satan occupied a throne, an illegitimate throne, so that he had authority over all the nations? Uh, maybe another way to ask this question is this. Um, was Satan speaking truth when he said, uh, To you I will give all this authority and their glory, for it has been delivered to me? Was he speaking truth when he claimed to have had this authority over the nations delivered to him? Yes, he did have this authority delivered to him. Um, how so? How so? I think we must see this. We have to be better students of the Bible, brothers and sisters. We have to read the whole thing as a, as a unified story, you see. Um, let's go the, back to the beginning. And let's remember that God offered Adam a throne. God offered Adam a throne. When God created Adam, Adam was made to rule on earth as a king under God's authority. Are you with me? It's a part of what it means to be made in the image of God, by the way. Adam was made to, to be a king on earth, an earthly king who would submit himself perfectly and perpetually to the King of kings and the Lord of lords, namely God Almighty. Adam was to expand God's kingdom. He was to build God's temple. He was to fill the earth with worshipers of God. And he was to keep or protect God's temple kingdom from all intruders. When Adam listened to the voice of the serpent, through the voice of his wife, who was deceived, instead of the voice of God, the devil was then permitted to sit down on the throne that was offered to Adam. And it was he, the devil, who began to rule the nations instead. There are so many texts that speak of this and hint at this. Perhaps it's none more clear than John 12.31. This is Jesus speaking not long before His death, burial, and resurrection. And He spoke to His disciples saying, Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to Myself. Who is this ruler of the world of which Christ spoke immediately before His crucifixion, His death, burial, and resurrection? It is Satan. He referred to him as the ruler of this world. Satan was the ruler of this world. He took the throne that was offered to Adam as his own and he sat down upon it in an illegitimate way. He was a usurper of this throne, you see. And he kept the nations in darkness for all of those ages leading up to his death, burial, and resurrection. Israel alone was taken from amongst the nations as God's chosen people 
his peculiar possession. But the nations were left in darkness for all of those years. But when Christ came, he came to throw this ruler down from his throne. Hear it again. Now is the judgment of the world, Jesus said. And when I am lifted up from the earth, this is a reference to his crucifixion, and this is a reference to his ascension, you see. When I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. Jesus also speaks of this aspect of his mission when in Matthew 12, 19, he says, Or how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? Then indeed he may plunder his house. If you want to rob somebody and the owner of the house is home, I'm not promoting this in any way, but if you were to do something like this, you would have to first bind the owner of that house so that you could walk off with his possessions. And in context here, in Matthew 12, Jesus is talking about his power and authority over the devil and his demons. He's demonstrating this power by casting out demons. And so he explains what's going on in this metaphorical way. Jesus has entered into the strong man's house in the incarnation through the virgin birth, And in his earthly ministry, he has kicked down the front door of Satan's house. And it is his house. It was his house because of the fall of Adam into sin. In the incarnation, he kicked down the front door of Satan's house. And beginning here, at his temptation in the wilderness and his victory over it, he began to bind the strong man. For what purpose? For what purpose? So that he might plunder the strong man's house. Satan, from the fall of man to the resurrection and ascension of Christ, kept the nations in darkness, and Christ will have the nations as his inheritance. And so he came, not to be your moral example primarily. He came to win the victory over the evil one and to lead a host of captives free. He won the victory on earth. He descended to Hades and proclaimed victory there after the work was finished and he led a host of captives free into the very presence of God Almighty in heaven. The veil of the temple was torn in two. The way was opened up. You see, that is what is going on here in this passage. Satan is tempting Jesus saying, you know, let's take a shortcut. This is all mine. And there was truth to that. If you will only worship me, we can avoid all the suffering stuff. We could forget about the serpent striking at the heel. Certainly we want to forget about the the heel of the the, the son of Eve and the son of Abraham stomping the head of the serpent. I'm sure Satan didn't like that part of the prophecy of Genesis 3.15. Let's just skip all of that. If you will only worship me, it's all yours. It's all yours. Jesus came to bind Satan and to plunder his house. By the way, by the way, those who are premillennialists and I can't take the time to explain what that is. But if you know, you know. Those who are premillennialists, who think there will be a thousand-year reign of Christ in the future, most of you were this at one point in time, if you still are this. 
Please hear me. I think premillennialists would do well to notice that this binding of Satan, this binding of Satan has already taken place. It has already taken place. It is not a future thing. It is not future to us and before some strange and literal thousand-year reign of Christ yet to come. No, clearly, clearly, Christ bound Satan at his first coming. And he sits now on his eternal throne. He ascended. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to him. His kingdom, his millennial reign, is here now. And it has been here ever since his ascension. He rules and reigns throughout the church age, or if you prefer these terms, throughout these last days of which the 1,000 years of Revelation 20 is a symbol. You are not surprised to find numbers in the book of Revelation used in a symbolic way, are you? The 1,000 years of Revelation chapter 20 is symbolic of this entire church age, these last days. And what marks the beginning of this millennium, this 1,000-year reign of Christ? It is the binding of the strong man. It is... The casting down of Satan, the expelling him from the throne that he had possessed from the fall of man into sin up until the resurrection of Christ and ascension. You see, Christ has bound the strong men and he has sat down on the throne of his kingdom. When he ascended, he will sit on this throne for all eternity. This is not a future hope, it's a present reality. And our premillennialist brothers and sisters would also do well to notice the way in which Satan is said to be bound in Revelation 20. Not completely. Some of you are looking at me right now. You're going, Satan is bound? He sure does seem to be active. Uh, yeah, I'm not unaware of that. Uh, apparent contradiction. There is no contradiction whatsoever. Just read the passage in Revelation 20. He is bound, and now I quote Revelation 23, so that, huh, you see, it's a, a specific kind of binding, a binding for a particular purpose, so that, here's where it all comes together and fits nicely into uh, a theological system, you know, that's drawn from the whole of Scripture, so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. You see how it all comes together? Christ came to win the victory over Satan to have the nations as his inheritance. And before he ascended, what did he commission his disciples to do? Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. And what did he say before he gave that commission? All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, Adam forfeited it. Satan, that usurper, sat down upon that throne. He was the prince of the power of the, the, the air for a time. You see, he was king of this world from a, for a time. But I have expelled him. I have bound him. I have come to plunder his house. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. Why? Because all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. You see how this all fits together quite beautifully? I, I get a little excited about the premillennialism stuff, not because I think it's a damnable heresy, it's not. Brothers and sisters in Christ hold to this view. But because I think this view, this idea that Christ will reign in the future, the millennium will be here in the future, Satan will be bound in the future, it robs the people of God of a precious truth. Your Lord reigns now, and Satan is bound 
now. Why? So that the gospel of Jesus Christ will have its victory to the ends of the earth. The Lord will accomplish it. So, these things must be said. What does all of this have to do with the second temptation that Satan brought to Jesus? Well, Satan understood that Jesus' mission was to accomplish this very thing. He knew that his time was short, and so in a last-ditch effort, he tempted Jesus to take a shortcut to his throne and to avoid all the suffering. Uh, that was, was what this temptation was all about. As is often the case with the lies of Satan, there's a mixture of truth of truth and falsehood in what he said. It is true that the authority and glory of the nations had been delivered to Satan for a time. That is true. But is it true that he had the authority to give it to whomever he willed, and that he would in fact give it to Christ if only he would worship him? Certainly not. So there's a mixture of truth, and there are lies contained here too. And so Jesus answered him, It is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and Him only shall you serve. Wouldn't it have been great if Adam would have said that? Hmm? This is a citation of Deuteronomy 6.13. This is a Deuteronomy 6.13 citation. I want you to hear it now, along with the surrounding context. We've already read it. It needs to be read again. Moses spoke to Israel, saying... And when the Lord your God brings you into the land that He swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, to give you with great and good cities that you did not build, and houses full of good things that you did not fill, and cisterns that you did not dig, and vineyards and olive trees that you did not plant. Are you noticing a theme here? And when you eat and are full, then take care lest you forget the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of the slavery. It is the Lord your God you shall fear, Him you shall serve, and by His name you shall swear you shall not go after other gods, the gods of the people who are around you. For the Lord your God is in, the, is in your midst, and He's a jealous God, lest the anger of the Lord your God be kindled against you, and He destroy you from off the face of the earth. I say it again, this was written originally to Old Covenant Israel before they entered into the Promised Land. It was for them, but it was typological of something greater, namely Christ, His mission, and the new heavens and new earth, which He would earn through His victory, you see. In Luke 4, 9-11, we are told of the third pronounced temptation of Jesus. And there we read, And he took him to Jerusalem, and set him on the pinnacle of the temple, and said, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here. And, and now Satan decides he's going to quote some scripture, and says, For it is written, He will command the angels concerning you to guard you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. This is so fascinating. Stick with me just a bit longer, because I think you'll find this enriching. You may be wondering, what scripture text did the devil quote? What scripture text did he quote in his temptation of Jesus? He quoted Psalm 91, 11 through 12. Psalm 91 is all about Jesus the Messiah. In brief, verses 1 through 12 of Psalm 91 talk about how God will preserve and protect the Messiah as the Messiah looks to God for refuge. Okay? It's about how God will preserve and protect the Messiah as the Messiah looks to God for refuge. Verses 11 and 12 are at the heart of the psalm, and they do say, For He, God, will command His angels concerning you, the Messiah, to guard you in all your ways. On their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against the stone. So Satan quoted Scripture. Really, he did. Just like heretics often quote scripture. <laughs> you, 
you have to ask, what does the text mean? I think it is very, very interesting that the devil quoted these verses, which are found at the midpoint of this psalm. You see, the devil was tempting Jesus to claim this promise of protection as if he were also saying, but do not go any further. Do not go any further. Can you picture the psalm there in your minds? There's many more verses that follow these that were cited. It's almost as if Jesus, if you can visualize, it, it, visualize this, was being tempted to go to the midpoint of Psalm 91. Like, let, let's take all of the, he's going to protect you stuff as you look to him for refuge. Uh, um, re, um, what's the word? Refuge. Let's go to the midpoint, but let's not go any further in this psalm, this messianic psalm. Jesus, let's, let's bow out now. Let's make the deal now. Look to God for protection, but ignore the rest of Psalm 91. Do you want to know what Psalm 91, 13 says? The very next verse? Listen to it and, and just ask yourself, does this sound familiar? You, the Messiah, will tread on the lion and the adder, the young lion and the serpent you will trample underfoot. What does that remind you of? Genesis 3.15 and the promise that the Messiah, the son of Eve, would stomp the head of the serpent. Let's go to Psalm 91.12, Jesus. Let's just stop there. Let's not go on with the whole treading the adder and the serpent underfoot thing. Let's just stop there. And as the psalm goes on, there is more talk of the Messiah, not only being protected from harm, but listen carefully to this. The psalm changes a bit and starts to talk about the Messiah being rescued out of it. Not only protected from harm, but being rescued out of it. Hear the rest of the psalm. Because He, the Messiah, holds fast to me in love, I will deliver Him. I will protect him because he knows my name. When he calls to me, I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. I will rescue him and honor him with long life, eternal life. I will satisfy him and show him my salvation. You see, this is how salvation would be earned by the Messiah. Not by being kept from trouble, not by being kept from suffering or duress, but by being rescued out of it. And it would be through suffering in this life, experiencing trouble, even to the point of the trouble of death, that the Messiah would indeed trample the serpent underfoot. Do you get it? Do you see what Satan is doing here? Let's take a shortcut, Jesus. Let's go to Psalm 91, 12, but no further. And Jesus answered him, it is said, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. This is a citation from Deuteronomy 6.16, which says, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test as you tested him at Massa. You shall diligently keep the commandments of the Lord your God and his testimonies and statutes which he has commanded you. And you shall do what is right and good in the sight of the Lord, that it may go well with you, and that you may go in and take possession of the good land that the Lord your God get, swore to give to your fathers by thrusting out all your enemies before you, as the Lord promised. I can't make every connection, but this is so beautiful. Brothers and sisters, the land promised to Israel was Canaan, and the enemies were the Canaanites. But do you see, though, that the land promised to the Messiah was not Canaan, but the whole earth to be renewed at the consummation, and the enemy to be driven out was the devil himself and all who belonged to him. 
Jesus could not simply run to the Lord for refuge. No, he had to trust the Lord to rescue him from suffering. And it would be through suffering that he would trample the serpent underfoot and thus enter into life eternal, the new heavens and new earth. A land truly flowing forever and ever with milk and honey and every good and pleasant thing. The last question I have is this. This will be brief and with this we will close. Why did this happen Answer, so that Jesus would perfectly obey God and defeat the devil. True, the victory would be won decisively at the cross, but it began here. Christ was not only victorious at the cross and through his suffering, but in the whole of his life, through his perfect and perpetual obedience to the Father. He began to obey the Father from infancy, but especially at the beginning of his ministry in the wilderness as he was tempted, he obeyed him in the Garden of Gethsemane, saying, Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done, O Father. You see, and he went to the cross and endured the shame for the joy that was set before him to accomplish our redemption. Brothers and sisters, how could I convince you that before you look to Jesus as your example, you must look to him as your victorious Savior and conquering King? Do not make this error of looking to him as a moral example only. He is not that primarily. He is your victorious Savior. He is our conquering King. We are saved from our sins and given eternal life, brothers and sisters, not by imitating Jesus, but by trusting in Him. And only after we trust in Him by God's grace can we then imitate Him by God's grace. And I hope that you can see the difference. Sometimes I wonder how people can sit in church their whole life Listen to sermon after sermon and yet not be saved. You know this happens, don't you? The scriptures say that it happens. There are goats intermixed with sheep. There are weeds intermixed with wheat. But how can this be? I think one reason is this. They have looked to Jesus as a moral example, but not as a victorious Savior. What would Jesus do, they ask? And as good as that question is, it is not the gospel. The gospel is not found in the question, what would Jesus do? But in the question, what has Jesus done? The answer is that he has lived a life of perfect obedience for sinners. He died in the place of sinners. And he rose on the third day for sinners. So that all who believe upon him may be saved. They are clothed in his righteousness. They have their sins washed away. And they live forevermore with hope of life everlasting. Because of what Christ has done. You should imitate Jesus in his victory over temptation, of course, but it is far more important that you trust in the work that he has accomplished, for he has won the victory over sin, Satan, his dark kingdom, and death itself. To be saved from these things, you must be found in Christ. You must be united to him by faith. With these words, we will conclude. Let's go to prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you for the word of God, which is so very rich. I pray that you would make us good students of it, not so that we might fill our heads with knowledge, but so that our hearts might be captivated by you, O God. May we have love for you, O God, and love for the Christ you have sent. May we look to him as our Redeemer, as our friend. God, we thank you for the mercy and grace that you have shown to provide such a Redeemer for us, Christ Jesus the Lord. May we have faith in him now. May we have faith in him always. I pray for those who do not yet have faith that you would draw them by your word and by your spirit. In the name of Christ we pray. And all of God's people say, Amen.